0: Uh, you can keep your Bibles right where they should be, should be on the same passage that Dan just read for us, Daniel 7, 15 through 28, pretty, pretty good-sized section of Scripture for this morning, uh, but the good news is, is that we have spent several weeks uh, already describing and breaking down this passage, so today will be kind of more like a summary and all of that. Uh, there, there's a few details here that we'll expound Uh, But for the most part, we've kind of looked at this material already, Uh, and that's the trick of some of these passages. You have like the vision up front, then you have the interpretation on the end, but my desire is to explain things as we go. So by the time you get to the interpretation, you guys are like, we already know this. So kind of let the cat out of the bag already, but that's okay. Uh, We have been examining Daniel's first vision in chapter 7, that's where we see it. And so far we have looked at, just a quick recap, we've looked at the four beasts who rose up from the great sea, we've looked at the Ancient of Days, that's God, and His judgment against uh, those beasts. We've looked at the Son of Man who is brought before the Ancient of Days and then given dominion over the entire earth, over, uh, those beasts are defeated and judged and He is given the dominion we've looked at that and we know that the Son of Man is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. This morning, we're going to look at the angel's interpretation. So, like I said, we've looked at the beast, we look at the Ancient of Days, we've looked at the Son of Man, now we're going to look at the angel's interpretation. This is when the angel uh, describes to Daniel what the vision means. And as I said, we've already covered some of this material, so some of it I'll just touch on, other things I'll emphasize. I'm going to pray as we get to work. Lord, thank you for just the beauty of the old hymns and how they prepare our hearts for the sermon and for the exposition of your word. We thank you so much for that. Um, I pray that, Lord, that uh, you would send your spirit, and I believe he's already with us here, but that you would send him in power, that he would take the word of God and open our ears, minds, and hearts to it and transform us through it, that we would become a little bit more like Jesus. And bring you more and more glory as we go about our daily lives until you return or until we go to you. But we want to yield ourselves now before your throne. Teach us, we ask. Uh, minister to us, sanctify us, conform us to the image of Christ. Um, just help us in every way. Some of us have come in here, if not all of us, with certain things that we're pondering or facing, and um, it's it's pretty easy to be distracted by. The cares of life, and, uh, and you are so gracious and merciful that you minister to us in the midst of those things. You don't say, rid your mind of those things, it's nearly impossible to do that, but you say, I'm going to heal those things, I'm going to work through those things, I'm going to bring about your good through those things. And so, uh, we don't want to be distracted this morning, Lord, we want to be focused on you, and we ask that you would teach and train each of us. If there be any man or woman here who has yet to come to know Christ, we pray, that you would bring them to salvation by your grace through faith in Christ alone. So receive the glory for this sermon, Lord. We love you so much and pray this in your name. Amen. All right, guys, let's pick it up at verse 15. Got a lot to cover, so I'm going to be trying to move pretty quickly. I always say that and I always say that we're going to finish early and it never happens. Uh, But we're going to just get into it. So verse 15 of Daniel 7, you ready? you're ready? Look ready. Some of you are like, it's too early to fall asleep. I just started. Give me about a half hour. Then you can take your nap. As for me, this is where it begins. As for me, Daniel, so he's speaking, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. So he's already described the vision and now he says this. He makes this statement about his anxiousness about how uh, he is alarmed. It is the the vision itself that brought about this anxiety or this anxiousness in his spirit. Uh, And the word alarmed is is an interesting word. It actually can be translated as frightened or even terrified. So what he's saying is, is that this vision Scared me so badly, it frightened me so badly, it terrified me to the point of total and absolute anxiety. So that's the impact that this vision had on him at first. Just it just scared the tar out of him. And and here's what's interesting: after the angel gives the interpretation, his fears are not quelled. He gets the interpretation, and it's a totally beneficial interpretation, right? This is like the future. Of Israel, and this is the future of the world and all that, and, and the Son of Man wins, and we get the dominion and all that, and he's still absolutely frightened even after he gets the interpretation. Down in verse 28, the very last verse, he reiterates his fears. He says, uh, My thoughts greatly alarmed, quote, terrified, unquote, me. So he was still terrified. He was terrified before he got the interpretation. He was terrified after he got The interpretation. And and he adds a little detail there that um, is meant to illustrate the depth of his fear. He says, What? My color changed. Okay, so, so so maybe you've heard the expression he turned as white as a ghost or as white as a sheet. You've heard that 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 phrase, that term to describe someone who literally got scared so bad they became white. Well, that's exactly what. Happened to him. His tone, his color, left him. He, he looked like a dead person. That's how absolutely terrified he was. Uh, King Belshazzar, you remember him from chapter five. He experienced, uh, and that's if you were with us, I guess, or if you've read this passage. But he, he experienced the same terror and the same color loss when that floating hand appeared in his palace and began to write on the wall. Remember chapter five, verse six. He was terrified his color left him and so that's the that's the mode here for daniel he gets the vision before he even gets the interpretation he's absolutely frightened terrified after he gets the interpretation he's completely terrified so that's how he feels right now in this moment so just put yourself in his shoes have any of us can any of us honestly say that we have felt the same level of fear or terror as we've been expounding this text I haven't been very scared. Maybe that's because we're so after the fact. Uh, But he was absolutely terrified. So very interesting. Now let's look at 16. He says, I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things, of the vision. So Daniel actually realized that he was present in the vision and standing there with the angels around the judgment thrones and around the judgment throne of God. So this isn't something that he was like at a drive-in watching on a big screen. You know, this is something that he was, he was actually present in the vision, that he was a, a partaker of the event. He was actually, he saw himself like physically there. So it's not something that he just saw that appeared before him. He's actually there. He's looking around. Now, this image up here doesn't really do us justice. It's not like he just woke up out of his bed, started staring at the ceiling, and there's a glowing head talking to him. But he was actually there. He was actually in the vision. He was there around God's throne. And I think that because he's totally terrified, I believe that's the part that terrified him. I believe that when he realized that he was standing there with multitudes of holy ones, around the judgment seat of God and those other judgment seats where those judges were, were seated and they were making these judgments, I believe that is the part that actually terrified him. I, I think he was terrified by the beasts and everything else and all the other components, but I think that it was the presence of the Ancient of Days that really got to him, that really brought him to that level of, of fright. When Isaiah had a vision and found himself standing before the throne of God, his response was absolute sheer terror. He was terrified. He saw the train of God's robe, and and the whole structure shook. And and it just absolutely terrified him, right? You've read that in, in Isaiah 6, chapter 6, verse 5. What does he say in verse 5 of Isaiah 6? Woe is me, I am undone. Undone translates as blown apart. He found himself standing in this vision in the presence of Almighty God, the Ancient of Days, the all-powerful, infinite one. And it horrified Isaiah. And I think the same thing is playing out here with Daniel. Sure, the beasts were frightening. Sure, the Son of Man and that whole thing was interesting and created anxiousness and his lack of understanding all contributed to his fear. But it's him standing in the presence of God during this judgment that ultimately got him. When uh, Moses asked for God to reveal his glory to him, God replied, I will put you in the cleft of a rock. And, And we sang a song that talked about that, right? I will put you in the cleft of a rock and pass by you so that you can behold my glory from behind. Because you cannot see my face and live, right? You've read that whole narrative, amazing story, Exodus thirty-three, eighteen 18 through 23. Here's the bottom line. The full expression of God's glory and holiness is too great for sinful men to behold. It's, it's just too great. It's too enormous. It's too pure. It's too powerful. You cannot see God and live when he is in his full expression of his raging ultimate glory. When Christ, second person of the Holy Trinity, God, when Christ stepped out of heaven and left his throne, he left his glory behind, right? He became a little lower than the angels and those things. 2 Corinthians 8 9, Philippians 2 5 through 8, there was almost an emptying, if you will, of himself, of his glory. Right, He became a, a man like, like you and I. He wasn't a sinner like you and I, but He became a man like you and I. And He set His glory aside. And I think one of the reasons why He set His glory, that radiant, full blast of His glory, one of the reasons why He set that aside as He came to us is because He came to save sinners, not physically blind them. Can you imagine if Christ had come and done ministry in His full glory? People would have been melted. They would have been incinerated. That's how glorious and beautiful and incredible he is in his glory. Just think about it for a moment. What happened when Christ appeared in glory before Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road? The man went blind for three days until Ananias healed him and brought back his sight. God worked that miracle through him. Here's a man who encounters Christ, the risen, the exalted, the ascended Christ, right hand of God. This Jesus appears to Saul, and Saul can hear a voice, and he sees blinding light, and then he loses his sight for three days. That is the appearance of Christ. That is is what God, I don't know if you could even say that's what he looks like. How can you tell what he looks like? As soon as you see him, you don't have sight. You're incinerated. He's so glorious and so beautiful, sinful men like us cannot behold God in this this way. We cannot look upon Him in this way. We will be incinerated. We will be destroyed. And I think that Daniel is standing there in this vision, and he's saying to himself, why am I alive? Why am I not dead? I know that's the Ancient of Days. I can tell by the throne and all that. He's a student of the Word, of Scripture. He knows what's up, and he's wondering, I'm alive. He's blown away. He can't believe it. God's appearance is, is so glorious, so holy, so perfected, so transcendent, so illuminated that it can blind or kill a person instantly, instantly. And Daniel must have been fearful because of this. It wasn't just the beasts or his curiosity or ignorance at this point that drove him to fear. It was the very presence of of the ancient of days, the eternal God. I love R.C. Sproul gives this testimony and he was actually in seminary, I think, when he got saved. Isn't that weird how, you know, you profess to be a Christian and then you go to Christian college and then that's when you get saved? Shouldn't you be saved before that? <laughs> yeah, kind of, right? But sometimes it doesn't happen. He realized something during seminary and there was this stormy night and he woke up in the middle of the night. He couldn't sleep and he wandered off into the chapel and you've got lightning and thunder and snow and all of this stuff, and he, he, he comes into the chapel and there's a big cross up on the wall and he, he is struck by the awesome presence of God. He senses that he's in the presence of the Ancient of Days, the Almighty, and he falls on his knees weeping and terrified. That is the presence of the Ancient of Days. And, and oh, how we trivialize it today, don't we? We don't take it serious, although if, we were, if he appeared here now in his glory we would be burnt matchsticks. That's how beautiful and glorious he is. In an effort to quell his anxiousness and fear, Daniel approached one of the angels who was standing nearby and asked for help. Can you imagine? You're standing here in this scene that's playing out. There's this, the judgment seats. There's the Ancient of Days. There's the Son of Man who's being presented. And, and then you look around and you've got a hundred million plus angels, holy ones, there and, and you say, well, I've got to figure out what's going on here. And so you go over and approach Well, and this is what he's doing here. The angel that he approaches is identified as, as Gabriel, the angel Gabriel. How many of you have heard of the angel Gabriel? Pretty, pretty well-known angel in Scripture. In chapter 8, verse 16, that's where we see his, his identity revealed, and that's Daniel 8, 16. Extra-biblical literature identifies Gabriel as an archangel, which basically means chief angel or angel angel of high rank. Jewish apocalyptic literature of the post-exilic period, namely the books of Tobit and First Enoch, and I don't know if you're familiar with those books, but those were books that were written, and they're you know apocalyptic in nature. They describe seven archangels who stand in the presence of God. Uh, they are Surau, uh, Suruel, these are hard to pronounce, Raphael's not, Raguel, Michael, Gabriel, Remiel, and Uriel. The Bible, however, names only one archangel in Jude one nine, and he is the archangel Michael. How many of you've heard of the archangel Michael? So, that doesn't mean that there's not more than one archangel in Scripture. It just means that there's only one angel identified as an archangel in Scripture, and that would be Michael in Daniel ten thirteen. And we'll get there in four years. Uh, Michael is called one of the chief princes. That's, that's his title. He's called one of the chief princes. Chief prince and archangel appear to be the same thing, synonymous. Michael is, it says one, right? He's one of the chief priest, uh, princes. So that means that there's more than one. That means that there's more than one archangel. So I don't know if those extra biblical writings are correct. What it might mean is that Gabriel is an archangel, I think. So. little history there and stuff. It says, Daniel asked the angel, Gabriel, the truth concerning all this. Uh, This is interesting because in the past, people came to Daniel for help with visions. They came to him, right? And said, can you help me with this dream? You remember Nebuchadnezzar? They came to him. He was the guy that gave interpretations. He was the one that could interpret dreams and all that, but not this time, not this time. And maybe this kind of caused his fears too. Here he is seeing this stuff and he has no idea what it means. But in the past, he knew what things were. He he understood these things. He was the one in this scenario. He was the one who needed help. He needed help with the interpretation. And the angel graciously obliged him. Daniel wrote, he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. So let's begin to look at the angel's interpretation in verse 17. Verse 17, are you there? Are you tracking with me? You're good to go? You guys are paying really good attention. I'm I'm excited. If I have a spot on my shirt or if you're just interested in the word, I don't know. I'm going with it. Verse 17, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. So the first thing the angel did is explain the four beasts, the four great beasts, right? They represent four kings who shall arise from the earth. As stated in previous sermons, because we've already covered this stuff, the four kings are Nebuchadnezzar, he's the king of Babylon, Cyrus, king of Medo-Persia, Alexander the Great, king of Greece, and Antichrist, king of the maybe new and improved. I don't know if it's improved, but maybe a new version of the Roman Empire. Uh, That fourth king could represent some of the Caesars, but really at the end of the day, that king represents, that fourth beast represents the Antichrist. The second thing the angel did is issue a promise. Okay, So he says, hey, those four beasts are four kings that are going to arise. And then He interprets and gives a promise. Look at verse 18. He says, But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. So the promise here is fairly simple. After the destruction of the fourth beast at the second advent, second coming of Christ, the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom that has no end. So that's it in a nutshell. And I love this abbreviate. I think that's where the angel was like done. Okay, so here's what you need to know. It's four kingdoms, but the saints of the Most High God are going to be given the dominion and reign over the earth. That's like, that's it. That's all he gives. That's not enough for Daniel, as we'll see. But that's it in a nutshell. It's two little verses. Now, we need to remember a few things here. We need to remember that the nation Israel has been set aside by divine discipline since Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? So, since this time, what we're looking at, this historical event, just prior to Belshazzar's king, because that's when this vision came, you had Nebuchadnezzar, who was a king about five down the line from him. Since Nebuchadnezzar, since King Nebuchadnezzar, the Israelites, the Jewish people, have been set aside. We like to say put on a shelf. They are under divine discipline. God has, is, has put them under his disciplinary hand because of their idolatry, their revolt against him. And they've been in this mode ever since. Literally, when Nebuchadnezzar invades Jerusalem, right, and and removes the first wave of Judeans, which included Daniel and his three pals, that's when this divine discipline began. And we call that the times of the Gentiles. That would be the theological term. And I covered these things in my introduction to this book. That's when the, time of the, the times of the Gentiles began. That's when they went on the shelf. They're under the discipline of God. The times of the Gentiles is the period in which dominion over the promised land is removed from the Jews and given to non-Jews what we call Gentiles. So that's the discipline. This is the promised land. You're in it. You have dominion. You are no longer going to have dominion for a period of time. You're going to be ruled, controlled by Gentiles, which is like the worst case scenario for Jewish people. They typically would want to be ruled by their God, but then they wanted to be ruled by idols and everything else. They lost that dominion over the promised land. It was given to Gentiles. And that's the mode they're in right here. Who's the king at this point? Belshazzar, a Gentile king. And so that's the times of the Gentiles. And like I said, it is still in effect today, right? The Jews have been back in the land of Israel for a while since, what, 1949 or so? Is that when they went back? They were shipped back. They've been there since 1949, back again. Uh, But they still share that land, their land, the promised land, the area of Israel, whatever they call it, Palestine. I like the land of Israel, I like the promised land. They share it with Gentiles like what's one group that they share it with the palestinians right are the palestinians friends to the jews no not by any measure of the word friendship they're basically enemies they're constantly launching attacks in fact they've been doing that again lately so so right now they're still they might be back in the land in a sense but they have to share the land with enemy nations with gentile nations why because they're still under the disciplinary hand of god the times of the gentiles is still in effect. And quite frankly, they will not regain dominion over the region, over the promised land, until the times of the Gentiles ends with the return of Christ, their Messiah, our Messiah, their Messiah. When Christ, and here's kind of a summary of what happens, when Christ returns, he will save all Israel. Who's all Israel? The Jewish elect who are living at that time, Romans eleven twenty six 26 through 27. He will also, when Christ returns, he will Capture Antichrist and the false prophet and deliver them over to judgment. Revelation nineteen twenty. He will defeat and subdue the kingdom of Antichrist, right? The nations. Revelation 19, 21, Psalm 2, 8. And he will establish his millennial kingdom and reign in Jerusalem. Have you ever wondered where this is going to take place? He reigns in Jerusalem. That is the headquarters. That is where this all takes place. Revelation 20, Verses 4 through 7, Luke chapter 1, verses 32 through 33. At this point, dominion over the promised land will be fully restored to God's people, to the Israelites. Okay? The saints of the Most High, that phrase, that word, saints, when we think of saints, who do we think of? We think of, you know, regular Christians. We think of you, me, we're all called saints, I guess, if you're from the Catholic tradition. It's Peter and all of the big dogs, but we know in Scripture, saint is a generalized term for anyone who believes in Christ. But here, it, it's not a general term. Here, it's specific. Saints here translates and points to the Jews who will come to faith after the return of Christ at the end of and during the tribulation period—that seven-year period. You will have a re- during that period, you will have a revival. That breaks out, and many Jews will be saved. And guess what? They shall receive the kingdom that has no end, and thus fulfill God's covenant promise to Israel. That's when God is going to bring the Jewish people unto Himself. All of them know the Jewish elect, but a great number of them. And as I said earlier, so that's what's playing out here. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about this future salvation and redemption and getting the promised land back and dominion being restored. He's pointing to all of that here. But as I said earlier, the angel's short but sweet interpretation did not satisfy Daniel's curiosity because the text goes on and on and on. And I have to say that at first I was a bit critical of Daniel, then I realized I need to be critical of myself because these things make me so curious, and I want to know all the mechanism and inner workings and a chronology and all of that, right? And you've seen how some Christians, maybe you're one of them, you get all spun off on eschatology, and all you focus on is how it's going to all play out, and you have the Left Behind series on DVD, and you have it in book, and you read that over and over and over, and let me just say, it's Hollywood, There's some truth to it, but come on now, don't go all in on that, right? Right? I mean, have you ever noticed how many apocalyptic movies there are coming out of Hollywood today? It's almost like even Hollywood, as dense as Hollywood can be, it senses that something's about to go down. And I think that you're going to see a lot more apocalyptic movies coming out of Hollywood with Trump as president. I do. They think the end of the world is coming because he's president, and it may very well be here. Who knows? I don't think he's the Antichrist, but he's got the hair. So, let's look, at, uh, let's look at verse 19. I don't know where that stuff comes from. Paul would say the pits of hell. Uh, look at verse 19a. 19a, verse 19a. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast. So, he's not satisfied. Okay, so we win. That's great. I'd check out right then. Oh, that's not what he does. He says, then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast which was different from all the rest. Exceedingly terrifying, he begins to say. And we'll stop right there. Daniel seems to have had no difficulty in interpreting the significance of the first three beasts. He doesn't seem to have a problem with those ones, right? Because he's not asking about those ones. It was the fourth beast that caused him consternation. And he asked the angel to interpret its meaning. In verses 19b through 22, Daniel told the angel what he saw. It's like he reiterates to the angel, here's what I saw, and, and then he's going to get an explanation, right? So, and, and here's the thing. As he's describing before the angel, or maybe to us, I don't know how this played out, but he, he lays out the fourth beast from what he's seen. He adds a few details to it that we did not cover back in verses 3 through 14 of this chapter. Now, I have put this explanation that he's giving to the angel, I've put it in bullet points so that... Uh, it'll be clearer for you and it'll go a little faster. Like I said, we've spent a lot of time on this stuff already. I don't want to beat a dead horse here. First, number one, it had teeth of iron and claws of bronze. Now we've already discovered that it had teeth of iron, but claws of bronze is a new detail here that he adds. Uh, So it had these bronze claws that it could scratch and and destroy with. That makes it more frightening to me that Iron teeth would be very scary to me, but, you know, Freddy Krueger claws, that adds a whole nother level here. Second thing, it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. We've already studied that part. We've already looked at that detail there. That's the idea that the fourth beast just basically, you know, I, I called it an at-at. Apparently, it's an A-T-A-T. I was condemned for not using the right Star Wars uh, terminology several weeks ago. I repented. Uh, my sins have been forgiven. Uh, but it basically stamped out and destroyed the other kingdoms and what was left. Number three, it had ten horns that were on its head. We've already looked at that. We've already studied that, and we're going to look at more of that in a minute. Number four, it had a horn that came up and before which three fell. We've looked at that already. Number five, the horn had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. Okay, So we've looked at that, but a new detail there is that it seemed greater than its companions. We didn't see that in 3 through 18 or 14 or 13 or whatever it was. That's another detail. It was greater than its companions. It's stronger than its companions, this little horn. Uh, Number six, the horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came. And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So here we have another detail that we didn't look at in the previous section. Made war with the saints and prevailed over them. That is a new detail. And if you, uh, I don't know if you want to turn to it or not, I'll read it for you. But Revelation 13, 7 corroborates, uh, it, 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 it parallels with what's being said here. It itself says, and the beast was allowed to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. So there it's reiterated over in Revelation. And that's a that right there for me is a frightening verse. The idea that they wage war against God's people and, and God allowed this beast to conquer his people. That's like, really God? We got to go there? Yeah, apparently it fits into his whole scheme and, and everything doesn't sound pretty though. Now these particular things here, this, this, you know, the the conquering and the and the making war and all of that, this will take place during the tribulation, as well. And many will be converted to faith. Right? We've already talked about that. You've got the saints. That's the Jews who were converted during that time. And there are non-Jews that are converted as well. But we the emphasis here in this text is on the Jewish saints. Many will be converted to the faith, especially Jews. And the Antichrist will war against them. It infuriates him. And here's the thing. He's so tricky. The devil is so tricky, right? He, he acts like a friend to the Jewish people. He acts like a friend. He acts like a confidant. He acts like somebody that you can trust. But when they start getting saved and they come to Messiah in droves, you've got some witnesses that are preaching the gospel and so many of them get saved, this infuriates the Antichrist, and he begins to make war against them. Some will even be martyred. Revelation seven fourteen, The horn who made war with the saints and prevailed over them for a time, however, shall be brought to an end when the Ancient of Days comes in judgment and turns the kingdom over to the people of God, the saints. That's exactly what we're looking at here in this text. So that's how that plays out. That's the first part. Let's look at the angel's interpretation of the fourth beast in verses 23 through 24. So Daniel has reiterated to the angel and said, these are the things that I saw. I saw this fourth beast even making war with the saints and conquering them. But then the Ancient of Days comes in and kind of saves the day and judges. He's reiterated all of this. And now the angel begins to speak. This is the first time the angel speaks in the vision here. It says, thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms. Okay, so the question that comes to mind here, and we've covered these things already, how shall it be different? And he describes, it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. You remember weeks ago, I emphasized the spread of this particular warfare in kingdom. There has never been a king or a kingdom like this. It has not yet come, and there has never been one since. This is total world domination here. Some speculate that this just has to do with the region of the Mediterranean and all that, that that was the world, or the whole world, if you will. And, and I say, no, 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 no. That, that was the modern world at the time, if you want to call it that. But this is a global kingdom. This is a global king who literally subdues like all the nations. So... It shall devour the whole earth, not just a particular region. The whole earth is going to submit to this king. He will trample it all down, the whole world. He will break the whole world to pieces. All the kingdoms and everything will be put under him. 24, as for, the angel's still talking, as for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise. And another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. We've already focused on that. What else shall this king do? He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand. He's speaking of the saints for a time, times, and a half time. Okay? Okay. So there's the angel's description. And as I said, we've covered most of this stuff. There are, however, additional details that I want you to look at and focus on. What is time, times, and a half time? This is basically exactly, what did you say? That's exactly what it is. It is three and a half years, or as Revelation 13, five puts it, how many months? 42? 42 months. So the time frame of of this Antichrist. This isn't his his whole existence. He's around for longer than three and a half years. But there's a time frame in which he is at his peak power and putting that persecution and things on the saints. There's a peak time. It's a a three and a half year period. And I'm sure that during this time, that will seem like, for those who are on earth, an eternity, right? Because doesn't it, like when things are going great, things move so quickly. But when things are like hellish and difficult, it's like, I'm never going to get out of this. That's how you feel. This is like the longest three and a half years in history, 42 months. That's what time, times, and a half time is, three and a half years. What does shall think to change the times and the law mean? Here's what it means. It means that Antichrist, this king that rises up out of the 10 from that fourth beast, it means that he shall introduce an entirely new era in which he will abandon all previous laws and institute his own system. So the law of God and the laws of governments, everything is literally changed by this king. Everything is transformed to fit into his scheme. It's all his concoction now. Now this is not going to go over well, right, with people who Love God, hence the reason why they're persecuted and destroyed, because they follow the laws of God. Now, I'll summarize what the Antichrist, this little horn beast that rises out of the fourth beast, I'll summarize what he's going to do. Antichrist shall blaspheme God, force his subjects to adhere to his own set of laws, change the times, even. I don't even know what that means. Like, seriously? Yeah, I guess one o'clock's two o'clock. I don't know how that works he shall also persecute the saints for three and a half years, 42 months. That's going to be an incredible, incredibly difficult time on earth. And you've got these judgments that are being unloaded. It's going to be unreal. And if we're in Christ now, it's, something that we will observe as victors instead of having to transition through it, if we even make it. I remember one time I was sharing the gospel with a guy, and I was talking about, you know, the end is coming, and you've got tribulation and all that, and he did not want to have anything to do with Jesus at that point. And he says, so what you're telling me is that I'll have, if Jesus comes back or whatever, and this whole seven-year period thing that you're talking about happens, then I'll have like a seven-year grace period to figure it out. And I'm like, that's the stupidest way on earth to look at it, because about one-third of the earth's population is killed within seconds. You're probably going to be swept up with that, and then go right to Hades. So, you know, he's like, well, you know, I'll take my chances. (laughs) People just don't take eternity serious, right? And I have to admit, as an unregenerate believer for about 30 years of my life, I didn't take those things, things seriously either. I didn't take them serious. And this guy was like, well, I'll have seven-year grace period to figure it out. It's like, yeah, you're not going to make it even to that. I'm going to kill you if you don't submit. Um, I didn't say that, but I wanted to. So these things, again, will take place during the tribulation period. And I think that at this point, Daniel must have really been shaking in his sandals. Because I think that this vision, yeah, we see it as 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 a vision of victory, and that's because we've, Exposited it and looked at it in detail already. But at this point, for him, he's just seeing these beasts and this terror and this persecution. The idea that God is going to give his people over into the hands of Antichrist. I mean, this is just, it's adding to his fears. It's adding to his terror. It's adding to his is anxiousness. And really if you think about it in some ways for someone a person to be able to take over the entire world and make warfare in a way that's never been seen in subdue nations and people. This guy is like the ultimate terminator. I mean, wouldn't that if you're Daniel at this point, wouldn't you be you're going to somebody are you telling me, Angel, that somebody like this is going to come into the earth? Yeah, there's going to be a king like this. This fourth beast. That's why it's exceedingly terrifying. It's incredible. But, but, the angel wasn't finished with his interpretation, was he? He's got Daniel on the edge of just utter despair, but he hasn't finished. He hasn't described the good news yet, if you want to put it that way. He's about to give it here. Look at verses 26 through 27. So all this stuff's happening, and the saints are going to be martyred. It's going to be terrible There's going to be war, and they're going to be hurt and harmed, and he knows who he's talking about. You're talking about us. You're talking about our people, angel. And then it says this, but the court shall sit in judgment. (laughs) The court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion, speaking of the Antichrist, that little horn, shall be taken away. It's going to be taken away from him to be consumed and destroyed to the end. Verse 27, and the kingdom and the dominion And the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Even though the saints are going to go through hell. We get the kingdom. We get the dominion. It comes to us. That's what the angel says. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom. And all dominions, all dominions, not one dominion outside of this, all dominions shall not only obey, but serve Him. Oh, man, what news. Now, we've already gone over these details, so I'm not going to give you a lot more commentary on them, but I do want you to focus on one particular old phrase here or something of that nature. It's at the middle of verse 27, right? Right after the semicolon. His kingdom. His kingdom kingdom. He doesn't say the, the son of man again here. He doesn't, the angel doesn't even say that at all. Daniel knew who it was. The angel just says his kingdom. So that implies that there is a ruler over this kingdom. It's not the saints. They're co-regents. They'll rule with him. There is a king. There is a ruler. There is one who he rules over this kingdom and he is the greater king over all kings. His kingdom kingdom who is he referring to obviously he's referring to the son of man Jesus Christ it is Jesus Christ it is the the son of God it is the king of kings that's who he's referring to here that's the his it's his kingdom that shall be an everlasting kingdom it's his kingdom that will be over every dominion It's His kingdom that shall be served by every previous dominion, by all people, by all. All will obey Him. Hallelujah, right? It's Jesus. The question I have for you is, are we? And we are saints too. You might be wondering, okay, so the Jews get this kingdom and all that. What happens to us? Well, we get it too, man. We get it too. We've been grafted in we're a part of this thing. It's not just the Jews that will inherit this kingdom and receive this kingdom during tribulation as they come to faith in Christ by the Spirit's power and by the preaching of those witnesses, by the, the mighty hand of God as He pulls and rescues His people in from this Antichrist. It's, it's us as well. If you're in Christ now, it's, it's you. It's you. And that's good news. And I say hallelujah So the question is, are we looking forward to this future kingdom as the saints of the Most High? Do we look forward to it, or are we primarily focused on the current kingdoms, that which we see today, the kingdoms over in the Middle East and and the kingdom of the United States and the the kingdom of the EU and the kingdom of Ireland and the, the kingdom of South Africa and South America and Brazil and Canada, England, what kingdom, as the people of God, as the saints of the Most High, are we focused on? And I must add that these kingdoms that we see today, some of them are dreadfully evil. Iran, Syria, North Korea... They're terribly evil. They're like these kingdoms that Daniel was subjected to during the exile. They're terribly evil and wicked and violent and bloodthirsty. Some of these kingdoms are a little bit better. right? They're not as bloodthirsty. It's kind of hard to say that America isn't bloodthirsty. We've been at war for 2 not even two-thirds, 90% of the time that we've been a country. Now, I don't want to put any heat on our veterans or anything like that. Our government is the one that gets us into these wars, and I'm proud of our veterans, but sometimes we get into wars for unjust reasons, I think, maybe. I don't know. Most of the time, we're trying to do it for just reasons, but most of the time, I have no idea why we do what we do, other than the fact that we have sinners in government, just like us, not in government. I just want to add that the, the kingdoms of this earth, no matter how wicked or evil, no matter how seemingly righteousness they may be, they're all disposable. They will not stand. They will not stand. Many will fall before the return of Christ, maybe North Korea, who knows? But they're all disposable. So I ask, are they worth so much of our time and focus? Are they worth our energy? And and one way that we can tell if if we we do value them more than we should is that we spend so much time interacting with the political machine. No president's going to save the earth. (laughs) No president's going to save this nation. This nation has so much blood on its hands, there are millions. The blood of millions of babies cries out to the Lord. God is going to come against this nation with such vengeance. Vengeance and power our heads will spin if we see it in this lifetime because he's righteous it's going to happen throughout the entire world we're looking at it in daniel 7 this the united states is one of the greatest kingdoms of all time i would say it's getting close to rome rome the roman empire was unbelievable but as great as it is and as powerful as it is as it is and as powerful as its military is Nothing can stand against the ancient of days. Nothing can stand against Him. So where is our focus? Jesus told us where it should be. Seek first the kingdom of God and then everything else will fall into place. Everything else will be added to you. Two weeks ago, I challenged you to pray for Christ's return. It's not wrong for us to pray for that. The Apostle John did it toward the end of the book of Revelation. Come, Lord Jesus, come. It's not wrong for us to do that. We can pray for Christ to come back. Come and set this thing right. I also implored you and implored myself, encouraged us to live as kingdom people, and I gave you ten ways that you can do that. How are you doing with this, these prayers? Are you praying for Christ to come back? Are you praying over yourself and, and each day trying to, walk in the footprints of a kingdom person in love and in mercy and in grace and in holiness. How are you doing with these things? Are we living as kingdom people? Let's look at our last verse, verse 28. Daniel simply says, Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Before he gets the interpretation, he's scared out of his wits. After he gets the interpretation, he's scared out of his wits. What accelerated and fueled his fear? Obviously, the coming antichrist these kingdoms the beasts those things got to him i think the big thing that got to him as i said was the presence of the almighty where men are melted like candles he was still so fearful even after he got the interpretation and rightfully so it is a terrifying vision the future is seemingly terrifying there is so much that is yet to happen Interestingly, Daniel was so moved by what he saw, he did not speak of it or disclose it to anyone else for a period of time. What does it say? He kept the matter in his heart. He gets the vision. He knows what's going to happen, but he doesn't talk about it. He doesn't share it with anyone until later. Later on, he actually recorded his visions and began to share them with others, put them out there closing what is the purpose what is the purpose of Daniel's first vision we have an idea of what it means we know that things are going to happen and are coming but what is its purpose there has to be a purpose for these things it's not it's not to leave us in terror and fear and anxiousness what is the purpose Well, I believe it's threefold. First, it is to remind God's people of His promises. It is to remind God's people of His promises. Just think about the moment that this vision was given and then distributed and handed out or talked about with God's people. They are in exile. They are being held captive by the first beast. Just think of that. They were in the midst of great trial. Belshazzar was a horrible Babylonian king, the worst of the bunch. And this vision comes to Daniel, then it goes out to God's people, where God wants to remind his people, I know you're suffering. I know it's difficult. But I want you to remember my promise. God promise to not only save His covenant people through Messiah, the Son of Man, but establish them forever and ever. Isn't that what the text says? They shall receive a kingdom that has no end. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. One day, God will follow through with this particular promise. It is still yet to come. They are still... The the saints, the Jewish believers who will come to faith during that time, they're still under the time of the Gentiles, under God's disciplinary hand. But God made a promise to King David. He'll never not have a man on the throne in Jerusalem. That man is coming. That king is coming. That promise shall be fulfilled, even though they're in the midst of great difficulty. The promise will come to pass. Why? Because God always keeps His promises. How many promises have you broken during your life? I don't have enough extremities. I got to take off my shoes, and you don't want to see my feet. Some of you did last week. You're still wondering why. He is a God of covenant promise, and He fulfills His promises. God always keeps His promises. So first, it has to do with reiterating God's promise. There is a kingdom coming and ye shall receive it, even though you're in the midst of a difficult kingdom. Second, it is to encourage God's people during difficult times. That's obvious. Despite what is going on in the world, there will come a day when God will judge His enemies, when He will judge and destroy them, when He will set them things right where that total and full redemption, not just of our spiritual lives, but of our own bodies and our own future in a kingdom. There's a time where that full redemption will come when He will establish a perfect kingdom where believing Jews and believing Gentiles will dwell in perfect peace forever and ever and ever and ever. No hiccup, no pause, no delay. I'm not even getting an amen. He wanted to encourage His people during that time and us today that despite what is going on, I am coming in power to set things right. Third, maybe one of my favorites, it is to announce, it is to show It is to illustrate. It is to highlight. It is to shout from the rooftops God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. God rules over his people. Listen, friends, his people at this point are under. Um, Babylonian bondage. They're exiled. They're in prison. They're under Belshazzar, a terrible king. They're going to be under many Gentile kings and rulers for a long time till Jesus comes back. But that does not mean that God is not ruling over His people. That does not mean that God is not their king of kings. God rules over His people even when they're being ruled by malicious, angry, hostile kings. God rules over the four beasts, all the kingdoms of the earth, not just these big four, not just the future kingdom of Antichrist, over all kingdoms of earth. They don't get anything without his approval. They don't even happen unless he's ordained it. There's no kingdom that somehow skirts his will and what he's ordained and somehow comes into the picture. He's ordained it all because he's sovereign, God rules over Antichrist. God rules over the past, present, future. There is nothing that is outside of God's sovereign rule. And so often we feel that it is. There are things that are outside of it. Our lives are spinning, seemingly out of control. Things are happening. People are getting sick. People are losing jobs. People are losing homes. People are losing children. The government is doing this. These things are happening. I just watched a show the other day on Ruby Ridge. How many of you have heard of that? It was insane what happened, what our government did, attacking that family. And things happen, things happen. And and we don't believe during those times that God's absolutely, absolutely in control, that He's sovereign. Somehow He... Forgot about this. And look at what's happened. There's that detail in the text that talks about God giving his people over for a time. And that's for our own purification, for our own sanctification, for his glory. The what is it? The the blood of the martyrs is the seed of evangelism. It's not wrong for God to give his people over to the wicked kings of the earth. We serve him, it can happen. But He's still sovereign. He's still in control. No matter what's happening in your life. I love how R.C. Sproul puts it, there are no maverick molecules in the universe. Now we're thinking of something that you can't, you have to have a very powerful microscope to see. We're not talking about these big things that we look at. Whoa, look. There are no maverick molecules. Everything. He is over everyone and everything all the time at all times and let's not forget friends let's not forget that he works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes amen what is the purpose of this first vision it is to remind us of god's promises It is to encourage us during difficult times. It is to announce that our God is sovereign, in control, and all-powerful. That, my friends, is the message of Daniel 7. That is the message of the vision. I hope that you've been encouraged by Daniel's first vision here in chapter 7. Next Sunday, Lord willing, we will begin to look at his second vision in chapter 8. Amen.